0: Today, I'm thinking of a lot of
1: things. I'm thinking of my old playground.
2: This is Ted Williams, one of the greatest hitters in baseball history. It's July 25th, 1966, and he's thinking out loud on a stage. The stage is in front of a red brick building with white trim. To his right, there's an American flag. And in front of him, a sea of suits, sunglasses, and the occasional bouffant. The crowd is here to celebrate Ted, and for good reason. After more than two decades with the Boston Red Sox, he's being inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame.
3: Dedicated to baseball men of all generations, and I'm privileged to join him.
2: Ted is known as the Splendid Splinter, because he's a lean 6'3", and because he hit the ball so hard, you could imagine the bat splintering. Ted's career stats speak for themselves. A 344 batting average and 2,021 walks. He won six batting titles and was the last player in the major leagues to hit 400 in a season. But I would argue that his greatest contribution to baseball isn't his career numbers. It's what he says near the end of his speech.
3: I hope that someday, the names of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson
1: in some way can be added as a symbol of the great Negro players that are not here only
4: because they were not given a chance.
2: The Boston Red Sox might have been the last team to integrate, but it was Ted, one of their legends, was the first to mention a Negro Leaguer in his Hall of Fame speech. And by the way, Ted Williams was a huge fan of Satchel Page. Had been since he was a kid. Ted ends his speech by saying how grateful he is to have played the best game of them all. But this thought, that Negro League players should be given their place among the sport's greatest, stuck around long after he left the stage. In fact, The thought still lingers today. Can baseball truly be the best game of them all if it won't acknowledge all of its best players? From ABC Audio, this is Reclaim, the Forgotten League. I'm Vanessa Ivy rose Episode 5. The hall. Ted Williams gave that speech in Cooperstown, a quiet village in upstate New York. It sits between Albany and Syracuse, the Adirondacks and the Catskills. In some ways, it feels like an in between place, somewhere you drive by on the way to your next destination. But for millions of baseball fans, Cooperstown is the destination. That's because it's the home of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, when I say Hall of Fame, I'm talking about two things. There's the Hall of Fame, the list, the hallowed scroll of baseball's greatest. Today, that list has 342 names belonging to players, umpires, managers, and executives. And then there's the Hall of Fame, the museum. It's the brick building on Main Street that houses memorabilia from all generations of baseball, like Lou Gehrig's Yankee Stadium locker, Hank Aaron's uniform from the day he broke Babe Ruth's home run record, and the Cubs' 2016 World Series championship ring. There's a room, not quite a hall, where bronze plaques of Hall of Famers are displayed on the walls. It's a gallery of baseball's greatest. The Hall of Fame is a place, but it's also an idea. And the members of the Baseball Writers Association of America get to decide who counts as the greatest. The organization was formed in 1908 in my hometown, Detroit. It started out as a group of sports writers lobbying for better working conditions when covering major league games. These days, the group is the voting body behind baseball's top awards. The idea of the Hall of Fame actually came before the place. The first class of inductees was selected in 1936, before the museum was built. You may know some of them. Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson. They were at the inaugural induction ceremony held in 1939.
5: It gives me a great deal of pleasure to be present at the dedication of the National Baseball Museum
2: and the baseball— Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was commissioner at the time, spoke at the ceremony.
5: I should like to dedicate this
0: museum to all America.
2: All America. Landis might have had a different idea of what that meant back in 39, when segregation was the standard and the Gentlemen's agreement still ruled the game. By the time Ted Williams joined the Hall of Fame in 66, America started to change, and the Hall of Fame had some catching up to do. No player who had made their name in the Negro Leagues was a part of the Hall of Fame. And that's partly due to a rule governing who could even be considered for the honor. Players were only eligible for the Hall of Fame if they played 10 years or more in the major leagues. This disqualified many Negro leaguers who were too old to play in the majors by the time integration came around. And I want you to keep integration in mind. Because the path toward inducting Negro leaguers into the Hall of Fame was a lot like the path toward integration. In both cases, momentum was built by Black journalists who campaigned for Black players to be included. First in the major leagues, and now in the Hall of Fame. In both cases, a white man called for change. For integration, there was Branch Rickey. For the Hall of Fame, there was Ted Williams. And in both cases, there was a change in leadership within Major League Baseball. Back then, Happy Chandler took over as MLB commissioner, leading to the end of the gentlemen's agreement and the start of integration. This time around, a few years after Ted Williams' speech, Bowie Kuhn took over. During his tenure, he and others convinced the Hall of Fame to create a special committee to elect the first Negro League's player. The committee had 12 members, including players such as Roy Campanella and writers such as Wendell Smith who you may remember as the person who helped launch Jackie Robinson's professional career. They had a tough question to answer. Who deserved to be the first inductee? The committee ultimately chose the legendary pitcher, Satchel Paige. This was progress, sure. But Satchel's induction came with a caveat. Here's historian Leslie Heafy, The Hall of Fame
0: initially wanted to put him in a separate wing and not allow him to be
2: in with all the other plaques. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Separate, but equal. The backbone of segregation. This decision was not well received by the press. In fact, an editorial in the Pittsburgh Courier said it sounded like the backseat of a bus.
0: The hall backed down and they ultimately made the right decision and put him in with all the other ballplayers. But that was the initial
2: reaction. The Hall changed its tune only one month before Satchel was expected to be inducted. On August 9th, 1971, Satchel came to Cooperstown.
5: So I will say this again. I am the proudest man on earth, right, today. And I know my wife is and my sister...
2: Satchel was in his 60s at the time. Before the ceremony, he was quoted by newspapers as saying, I'm proud wherever they put me in the Hall of Fame. But part of me knows it wasn't that simple for him. To be given what you're owed way too late and expected to be grateful for it, is something too many Black people have been asked to do for too many years. If we weren't told no, and we were told to wait. Despite waiting decades to receive his flowers, Satchel was proud of being the first inductee, but maybe his legacy in the Negro Leagues was already enough for him. Because Satchel was also quoted saying this, I was satisfied with my world, playing all over and being a keynote to black people. The Negro Leagues was a universe unto itself, and Satchel was at the center. Regardless of how he did or did not feel, Satchel opened the door for other Negro Leaguers to be inducted.
0: Josh Gibson in 1972, Buck Leonard also in 1972, Monte Irvin in 1973, and Cool Papa Bell in 1974.
2: My grandfather played alongside and against these men, but his name was nowhere to be found on this esteemed roster. His wife, or as I call her, Grandma Nettie, couldn't accept this. For years, she wrote letters, in perfect penmanship, of course, to everyone. Baseball historians, journalists, local officials, you name it. Grandma Nettie wanted the world to know about Grandpa Turkey's legacy. And for her, a big part of that world was Cooperstown. In 1971, Cooperstown sent a submission form to my family, an early step to potentially getting on a Hall of Fame ballot. But it didn't go anywhere, despite my grandmother's efforts. To my grandfather, it didn't seem to matter. By the 1970s, he had retired from the Ford Foundry after 30 years there. His golden days were well behind him, and it seemed like he would fade into obscurity like so many of his peers. Then one day in 1979, my mother Joyce went into his bedroom and found a letter on the dresser. It wasn't from the Hall of Fame. It was from a Kentucky native named Tom Stoltz, And I picked it up and I read it and it was
3: an invitation to come to the Negro Leagues reunion. I said, Dad, this is an invitation and this is like a week before.
2: You heard that right. An invitation to a reunion of Negro Leagues players. You see, Tom Stoltz was a newspaper publisher who recently found out that a Negro Leaguer grew up in his hometown. So he decided to throw a birthday party for the player, Clint Thomas. Clint was turning 83 that year and had been an outfielder and second baseman for many teams, including the Detroit Stars. After his baseball career ended, he worked as a custodian and later as a messenger for the West Virginia State Senate. Imagine that, a baseball player who was so good that he was known as the Black Joe DiMaggio, cleaning floors and delivering mail. As Tom Stoltz told the Washington Post, Here was a guy the world had forgotten for 40 years. Tom started inviting Clint's former teammates, including Grandpa Turkey, to this party. They were now in their 70s and 80s. This
3: was like a week before something. And he said, oh, well. And I said, all the Negro Leaguers are going to be there. You need to go to that. So I called Tom and he said, it's not
2: too late for him. And so my family made their way to Kentucky. They were flying from Detroit to Cincinnati, where they had a four-hour layover. And then from Cincinnati to Ashland. But Grandpa Turkey wasn't a fan of planes.
3: I didn't tell him we were flying. I waited until we got to the airport. and He said, why are we stopping here? And I said, because we're going to fly. <laughs> Surprise! You know, but he loved me so much. He, he accepted it.
2: While they were in the sky, my mother remembers him looking out the windows and saying... What man can do? Then he started singing one of his favorite songs, My Country Tis of Thee. I wish I were there to hear him sing, and I wish I had been with him when he landed in Kentucky and made his way to the reunion. But I wasn't even born at the time. Everything I know about that weekend, I know through my mother. And one other thing.
3: I have the audio tape of him.
2: An audio recording of Turkey Stearns. I had spent my life getting to know Grandpa through photographs, newspaper clippings, the words of my mother, and Grandma Nettie. But I had never heard his voice. I remember the first time I listened to this tape. I was so nervous. You can hear the reunion happening around him on that July weekend in
3: 1979.
1: I drank this half ramen. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not this one. I gave you the wrong one. I'm sorry. Wait, he's gonna get you some more. No, that's all right.
2: There he was, my grandfather turkey, teasing my mother for accidentally giving him a ramen coat. coke. Neither of them drank. That's why it was funny. And honestly, I love that the first time I heard my grandfather's voice, he made me laugh. I appreciated that bit of comic relief, because frankly, it was overwhelming to hear his voice. In the past, I had thought about what it would be like to see him play. To step out onto the field with his fellow monarchs and hit that ball. But I'd never thought about his voice. And yet here he was, as if I had heard him my entire life. It was like finding buried treasure. Here he is, talking about his nickname. Why
0: did they call you Turkey? Oh, I have a nickname. How
2: come? The man who's asking him questions is journalist Joe LaPointe. Since the reunion, he's become a family friend. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. So I sat down with him to talk about that day. Thanks for having us. To see you. Joe Lapointe has covered sports for decades, starting at the Detroit Free Press and later at the New York Times.
0: Have you listened to the recording? Uh, you can hear good, the South in, in it, the right. Southern accent. Right, right. That so many people
2: in Detroit. Had. Joe was writing for the Detroit Free Press at the time. He didn't know much about the Negro Leagues when he went to the reunion. I had heard of them when I was a kid,
0: but it was like a. Ghost League. that was a lot, like spirits were still around, but there wasn't a lot of film, and there wasn't a lot of record books. And uh, somebody tipped off my sports editor that this this player who was really good was going to be returning uh, south for a reunion with some Negro League players. And my editor said, "Are you interested in going?" I said, "Heck yes, that's a good story."
2: What started out as a birthday party for Clint Thomas became a whole production. It was held at Tom Stoltz's house. But don't assume it was a humble affair. There was a banquet and a boat ride. Many notable baseball figures were there, including the former MLB commissioner, Happy Chandler. But the real stars were the former players. Judy Johnson, Monty Irving, Buck Leonard. The Washington Post reported a touching moment between Clint and former shortstop, Paul Stevens. They both played for the Homestead Grays in 1929. Paul greeted Clint with the line, sit down, old man. To which Clint replied, what you mean, old man? It was a joke among old friends, but this exchange pointed to something bigger. Many of the men at this reunion hadn't seen each other since the collapse of the Negro Leagues. That was in the 1950s. Two decades had passed. And at this point in their lives, they were ordinary guys, working ordinary jobs. But this weekend, they were teammates again. There was hugging, the swapping of playful insults. But my grandfather, like always, stayed out of the limelight. How would you describe him?
0: Quiet, Pleasant, um, smiled a little bit, but not, he wasn't a, a slap-on-the-back Yahoo guy. He was a, a, one of the quieter guys.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody seemed to know him, and everyone seemed to respect him. Grandpa Turkey didn't say much. Until you got him talking about the Detroit oh, Tigers. I told him you go to all the Tiger games. Yeah, I do. What do you think of it? I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but my grandfather wasn't allowed to play in the Tigers' home stadium because of segregation. Despite this, he would go to as many Tigers games as he could, even years after he retired. He would ride the bus to the stadium and sit in the bleachers, where most of the Black fans were. My grandma Nettie said, you always knew when the Tigers were losing, because grandpa would come home early, before the game was even over.
0: What do you think of it? It's be all right. It, it,
5: could, it could do better, but you put up with it. A ball down.
2: I think Joe LaPointe's conversation with Grandpa Turkey sparked an idea. A few weeks after the reunion, Joe called my family and said he'd like to do a photo shoot with Grandpa Turkey at the batter's box in Tigers Stadium. So Turkey went there and met with Joe and photographer John Collier. My mom dressed Grandpa Turkey up for the occasion.
0: She had him in a suit coat, uh, or a sport coat, right. creased trousers, neat hat. I mean, she had him sharp. Right. And his batting stance was sharp. The way he picked up the bat, flipped it back into his batting stance, the left-handed side of the plate, and you could tell that this guy knew what he was doing around a baseball bat. And, and he looked out to the outfield um, toward the pitcher's mound in the outfield, and in his field of vision, there would have been the very bleachers where he and his friends sat to watch a baseball game. And I thought, well, what an interesting moment this is. He was always denied the chance to play on this field, but sure enough, he was able to watch games here, and now here he is holding a bat.
2: When you look up Turkey Stearns, that photo is one of the first that pops up. I love this picture. Joe is right. Grandpa Turkey knew what he was doing. His stance was so natural that it didn't even look like he was posing. He was ready to take a swing. You can see it in his eyes. You wouldn't have guessed that he never played a game at Tiger Stadium. He belonged there.
0: And I got a chill. At the time, we took the picture, and I still get a chill when I look at the picture. I think the picture was better than any words I wrote.
2: When I look at this photo, there's something else I notice. There's so much power in his stance, but he looks very thin. My family didn't know it at the time, but he was sick. Shortly after that photo shoot at Tiger Stadium, my mother took him to the hospital. He said his stomach hurt and he kept pointing toward the center part. My mother says Grandpa had a high tolerance for pain, so it was a big deal for him to mention this. The doctors started running tests, but they couldn't get any answers. Then Grandpa took a turn for the worse and had to get surgery. It was stomach cancer. The cancer had perforated
3: his stomach the size of a donut. He had it for about five years. He should have been in an excruciating pain.
2: Before my family could even process this, he went into a partial coma soon after the operation.
3: And I used to go and talk in, in his ear real softly and I would see his eyes flutter. So I, I hope that meant that he was hearing me, but he never woke up.
2: My grandfather passed away on September 4th, 1979. At his funeral, Mom and Auntie Raj sang Going Up Yonder, one of Grandpa's favorites. Even to this day, when they sing at Comerica Park, I feel like they're still singing for him. My grandpa didn't receive fame or fortune during his career, but he valued being what he called a good man. He never had a bad word to say about anyone. And he lived for his family. This meant more to him than winning a World Series. And it's been over 40 years. And his beard still lives in me because he was so kind. I owe so much to my grandfather. This man I've never met, but feel like I've always known. Because of him, I know that anything is possible for me. It's like what the great writer James Baldwin once said. Grandpa Turkey has already paid for my crown. All I have to do
4: is wear it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time, but the real question is... Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems, it's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp visit betterhelp.com/reclaimed to get 10% off your first month again that's betterhelp slash reclaimed
2: we've got the exclusive view behind the table every day right after the show while the topics are still hot the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view The views behind the table podcast listen wherever you get your podcasts. By 1979, the year Grandpa Turkey died, black representation in Major League Baseball was about to hit its all-time high. Ever. Some of its biggest stars were black, like right fielder Reggie Jackson.
0: One of the game's great personalities and clutch hitters, Reggie Jackson,
2: formerly of the New York Yankees and Open A's. This was the next generation of black players. Players who owed so much to the men who came before them. In fact, Reggie's father even played in the Negro Leagues in the 1930s. But many Negro Leaguers like Grandpa Turkey had passed away or long retired from baseball. An entire generation of Black players never got the recognition they deserved. So it was high time to acknowledge the legacies of these men and to put their names on the sacred walls in the Hall of Fame. Now, getting any player into the Hall of Fame is a process. There are lots of rules about who is eligible to be voted into the Hall of Fame and who gets to vote for them. To make things more complicated, those rules often change. And not everyone in the baseball world agrees on the rubric that the players will be judged against. It's not as easy as counting up the number of home runs someone has. Words like, Character and popularity and legacy are part of the discussion. And there's always lots of discussion and debate among the voting members of the Baseball Writers Association of America about who should be on the ballot. Once those potential inductees are selected, the voters decide who they think is most deserving. For a while, it didn't seem like Negro Leaguers were seen as deserving. And by 1979, the Special Hall of Fame committee that inducted Satchel Page had been disbanded. Out of more than 3,000 Negro Leagues players, only nine had been inducted. And that was it. So Cooperstown expanded the jurisdiction of what was called the Veterans Committee. It was made up partly of living Hall of Famers, hence veterans. The committee was separate from the Writers' Association, but their voting process was similar. Lots of debate, and then a deciding vote. In the decade that followed, the 1980s, the Veterans Committee only elected two Negro Leaguers, third baseman Ray Dandridge, and someone you've already heard of, Andrew Rube Foster, the father of black baseball. Again, that was it. And getting these two in wasn't easy. Buck O'Neill, who was the first baseman for the Kansas City Monarchs, was on the committee with a couple other Negro leaguers.
5: Campanella, myself, and Marty Irvin. We got to sell these people. And so it was tough. So I I said, uh, we don't have much of a chance to put these guys in.
2: They had to lobby the other committee members to recognize Negro leaguers. So Buck proposed, you guessed it, a rule change. And in 1995, the Veterans Committee was given two extra potential inductees. One of those had to be from the Negro Leagues. Over the next five years, the committee put in five more players, thanks in part to Buck. Now, the crazy thing is that Buck himself should have been in the Hall of Fame from the beginning. He was a legend, and he played alongside Grandpa Turkey when they were both with the Kansas City Monarchs. But Buck realized he had other ambitions.
5: I always wanted to be a manager by looking at uh, Rube Foster in the dugout, smoking that pipe, giving the signals and things like that always, it it, it fascinated me.
2: Buck became a manager for the Monarchs while still playing first base. In the off season, he barnstormed or worked at the post office. In fact, he said he probably would have stayed at the post office if he hadn't started scouting for the Cubs. Buck ultimately became the first black coach in the majors. He stayed on the Veterans Committee for many years and kept campaigning for Negro Leaguers.
5: Hilton Smith would be one. Mule Suttles, Willard Brown, mm-hmm. or Ted Strong, mm-hmm. double-duty Radcliffe. These guys are supposed to be
2: in the Hall of Fame. Hilton, Mule, and Willard ended up getting inducted. To this day, Ted Strong still hasn't been. By the way, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe is in the family. He's the uncle of my Grandma Nettie, so that makes him my great-great-uncle. He played for more than a dozen teams and ultimately became a manager. But he was never a Hall of Fame inductee. That seemed to be the fate for Grandpa Turkey, too. Grandma Nettie was still writing those letters in that perfect penmanship to Cooperstown trying to get them to recognize Grandpa's legacy. Here's my Auntie Roz.
1: I said, just keep writing until something happens. So I said, we're just going to get on their nerves. I said, because you know the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be the squeaky wheel.
2: Two decades passed, and no luck. But then, in 1999, Auntie Roz received an email from a guy named Dan Dirks.
1: And he said, Well, if you're truly Turkey Stern's daughter, would you mind if we get your dad in the Hall of Fame? And I'm like, Yeah, right. This jerk, jerk. I said, Okay. I said, Well, shoot your best shot, because I'm thinking he's being he sarcastic, right? And so he said, Okay. And so he started telling me things that were going to happen and do this and do that. And he started asking for information. And he said, I need this from your family. And I need a little biography of your mom and your sister and da 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 da. I said, oh, my God, this man is serious. And so I had to apologize to him. Because
2: the man was serious. Dan was part of a group of men who lobbied for Turkey's induction by trying to raise Turkey's profile among the public and the members of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Finally, in 2000, it was time for the Writers Association to announce who would be joining the Hall of Fame. This was a big moment for my family. And there were enough emotions to fill Tiger's stadium. Auntie Rize remembers getting a call from the wife of one of the men trying to get Grandpa Turkey inducted.
1: And she said, would you please talk to my husband? Because if your dad doesn't make it to the Hall of Fame, I think he's going to have a nervous breakdown. And I said, no, tell him just be calm. I said, if we don't get it this year. I said, we'll just keep going until we do get it.
2: My family was ready to continue to fight. No matter what. But would they need to? Well, I'll let Buck O'Neill tell you.
5: How many of your uh, Monarchs are in the Hall of Fame? With the Monarch Ball Club would be B. Rogan and Satchel. Cool Papa played with the Monarchs one time. So did, uh, did the guy we just put in this year. Turkestine.
2: Did you catch that? I forget there's one team that had, like, This is strong. me in 2000. I'm 16 years old with a piece of gum in my mouth and my ponytail in a white scrunchie. And I feel like I'm in another universe, a universe devoted to baseball. I'm in Cooperstown, and Grandpa Turkey is being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Funny enough, a tennis match is happening in the background. Author Dick Clark, um, one of the guys who helped put my grandpa on the ballot, was asking me questions about my high school basketball career. There was what? other teams with kids our age playing, but we what? beat all them. But we didn't beat the professional team. But this weekend was about baseball. More than that, it was about Grandpa Turkey, the other inductees and the people who came to celebrate them. And there were some big names there. Yogi Berra, Willie Mays, Johnny Bench. Despite never playing in the majors, Grandpa was, on that day, considered one of their peers. Buck O'Neill was there, too. He came over to us and gave Grandma Nettie a hug. Here's Dick asking him a question about Grandpa.
0: I wanted to ask you how how Turkey was playing in his older, in his older days. Was he like still bad like third or fourth? Or? Yeah, oh, he was.
5: Yeah, yeah. Oh, we
0: could hit that ball, run,
5: play, play.
2: I know I should have been awestruck by all of these stars, but I remember being focused on my grandma. Grandma Nettie wore pearls on her neck, a smile on her face and a boutonniere of white and pink flowers on her dress. Because my grandpa couldn't be there, Grandma Nettie planned to accept the honor on his behalf. Here she is talking to Dick about the speech she was about to give.
3: I mentioned the ones that I met and, and, and um, knew that they
1: were, were working hard to get an in. That's what I did. I couldn't make well, okay. it, it. It's okay. It's not great, a great speech, but it's- gonna, no. It'll be a great speech. Don't worry about
2: it. And you know what? She didn't have to worry. Great is exactly how I would describe it.
3: Thank you, all you beautiful, wonderful, patient people for sitting and listening to us. Can you imagine how I feel standing up here with all these talented stars
1: on this platform
3: behind me? Well,
1: I'll
2: tell you, I feel great. (laughs) Not only did she answer her own question, but she quoted Tony the Tiger. Only my grandma would have the courage to do that on baseball's grandest stage.
1: I am honored and happy to stand here and represent my family as the speaker of, of my husband, Norman Thomas. Stearns,
3: nicknamed Turkey. A star that was born to play baseball. One that belongs
2: with stars. Grandpa was the 17th Negro Leagues player inducted into the Hall of Fame. A year after he was inducted, another committee was formed to elect the next round of Negro Leaguers to the hall. In 2006, they elected more than a dozen players, managers, and coaches. Then, nothing. For the next 16 years, not a single Negro Leaguer was inducted. And by this time, some of the rules had changed again. The Veterans Committee was broken into separate committees. One of them focuses on considering people whose contributions to the game came before 1950. That's the category Negro Leaguers fall under. But the thing is, this committee doesn't vote every year. In fact, it wasn't until last year that another batch of Negro Leaguers were voted into the Hall of Fame. Buck O'Neill was one of them. Finally, the legend himself was given his rightful place. 16 years after he died. But the committee that voted Buck in isn't scheduled to vote again until 2031. This means that if the rules stay the same, there won't be another Negro League's inductee for nearly another decade. Look, being in the Hall of Fame is an honor. It has ensured that even though many people still don't know who Grandpa Turkey is, at least he's not completely invisible. But I'm afraid that other Negro Leaguers may never have that chance to be seen. Because yet again, we've been told to wait. Like we always have been. Wait to play in the majors. Wait to be included among baseball's greats. And the thing is, Believe it or not, we're still waiting for much more.
3: A big announcement from Major League Baseball today, it has reclassified the Negro Leagues as a major league. That means it will now count us to... Who
4: are you to tell us that we are now major leaguers? You know, um, we always consider our relatives as major leaguers.
3: I'm not angry, I'm disappointed, and I'm fed up, okay? I want them to step up to the plate and do the right thing.
2: Reclaimed, The Forgotten League is an original production of ABC Audio, hosted by me, Vanessa Ivy Rose. This episode was written by Susie Liu. The series was produced by Madeline Wood, Cameron Chertavian, Iru Ekpenobi, Camille Peterson and Amira Williams Our senior producers on this project were Susie Liu and Lakia Brown Music by Evan Viola This episode was scored by Evan Viola and Iru Ekpenobi A big shout out to our ABC Audio team Liz Alessi, Josh Cohan Ariel Chester Sasha Aslanian Marwa Mawaki Audrey Mostek and Aaron Ferrer Special thanks to Chris Donovan, Rick Klein, Eric Fael, Anthony Fanick, Mara Bush, and of course, my mom, Joyce Stearns Thompson, and my aunt, Rosalind Stearns Brown. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Buck O'Neill Oral History Interview, courtesy of the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum.